Well, good morning, everyone. You guys braved the ice storm. Congratulations. I can't say that God will love you more because that would be foolish. But I'm pretty sure in heaven, when you get ice cream, you're going to get extra sprinkles for today. So that's really good. That's encouraging, right? So it's been worth it. Um, <clears throat> I, I was sharing with Marco, you know, we were asking about, you know, whether we, you know, should have closed today and other churches did and so forth. And I, I came to the conclusion, we just weren't probably smart enough to do something like that. So um, I don't know what that says about you guys for coming out, but that's, uh, that's something else. So, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Well, last time uh, I spoke a couple weeks ago, we were, we were talking about things and the importance of understanding things from a first principles perspective. That if we can understand sort of like the building blocks of things and, and how they all kind of fit together, then we can start to understand them in, in a larger way when, and we put those little basic building blocks together. And so that's what I'm, I'm loving about this passage that we're kind of working our way through right now. Going through those, these first 10 ch- uh, verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians is just so powerful because in, in many ways, Paul, he's, he's kind of going into some great detail on some of these first principles. So we just finished up chapter 1, and, and chapter 1 is these, all this over and over and great reminders about what God has done and you know, why we can bless him and why, how he's blessed us and, and incredible things. And then in these two, first 10 verses, it's almost like Paul is like pausing and he's going into deeper ways. He's going into more detail, trying to help us understand exactly what God has done to rescue us. And so... <clears throat> That's what we want to continue on with, right? We, we started that last week. We're going to continue on uh, t- the, this morning. But I want you to know and I want you to understand is that the Christian life is not one that is promised without struggle. That's really important to understand because I think sometimes we can fall into the trap that says that, well, now that I've come to Jesus, now that I've sort of got my life sorted out, then everything should just kind of click into place and all my problems should disappear and everything should be okay. And, and the reality is that's, that's not the case. I, I know for me growing up, that was the message that was implied. It was never out, you know, out and out spoken that way, but the message was essentially that if you come to Jesus, then he'll take care of all those problems and everything should go well. So if things aren't going well, what does that imply? Oh, you're blowing it. Oh, you're making a mistake. And, and that's not the reality. The reality is you and I, we're going to face struggles. We're going to face difficulties in this world because this is not paradise. This is, this is not what we're designed for. This is not what we're meant for. But we want to, this morning, kind of take a look at why we struggle. What is it that we're struggling against or is struggling against us? Because if we can understand that and understand that we do, in fact, have an enemy who's very active and very much working against us, if we understand who that enemy is and what he's doing, then that gives us a better chance, I believe, of of moving forward, of giving us a chance to kind of uh, fight against that enemy. So let's read our passage that we're going to study this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You can follow along on the screen here. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Let's pray. Father God, once again, another rich passage, so much in here. And so we're going to invite you to be the teacher. 
your Holy Spirit to speak to each and every one of us right where we're at in a unique way to help us understand more of why we struggle and what the struggle's about. And, and then how do we find victory in you against this enemy that's coming after us? We thank you, Lord Jesus, for how much you love us, that you don't abandon us, and that you're there with us every step of the way, fighting with us and for us. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, last time uh, I, I, I spoke, I talked about how, how mankind, men and women, were really comprised of three aspects or three components. And we have a spirit, a soul, and a body. And so we had this, this diagram up here. We have this diagram up here. There is this. We have this diagram up there that uh, I'm just messing with Marco. So <clears throat> we have this diagram up here that kind of shows these three parts, a spirit, a soul, and a body. And, and we talked about how the spirit's the most important part of who we are, but that Adam and Eve were created with needs. That there's a difference between having a need and being in need. Right? That you can have a need, but not necessarily be in need of that. So for example, we all have a need for oxygen, but we're not in need of oxygen because there's lots of oxygen in this room. Well, Adam and Eve, they had needs, but they weren't in need because who was providing for their needs? God did. But what were those needs? And so we kind of talked about those needs in, in kind of general senses. And so the needs of the spirit, the core of who we are, are things such as the need to be loved and the need to be accepted and the need to have value and purpose and significance and, and the need to, um, to belong and, and have, have security and all that, that this isn't going to just disappear on me overnight. And those are the basic core needs of every single person. But we also have needs in our soul. We have needs for, for wisdom and for truth and for discernment, the ability to make good choices and for things like peace and hope and joy and love for other people. And, and then we've got other needs for the body, things like food and water, air and shelter and, and so forth. All of these needs are from God. All of God is providing all this to us. And that's what it was for Adam and Eve, at least until they decided to go, go it alone, until they decided to try to find life on their own terms, right? Remember there was these two trees in the garden and God says, in the day you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. We said it was a warning. It was a warning to a consequence that they would be trying to find life on their own terms, independent of God, that they would try to satisfy their needs and their own strength, that they wouldn't be satisfied. They wouldn't find life, but they'd only find death. And the reason they wouldn't find life is because life can only be found in one person, and that's Jesus Christ, that's God. And so just as he promised, that experience of death, which is merely the absence of life, the absence of God's, God's love to them, was immediately felt. So instead of feeling loved and accepted, everything changed. Everything changed. In <laughs> everything changed. So instead of experiencing love and acceptance, now they're, they're knowing they're unloved and they're rejected and they're worthless and they're not good enough and they're insecure and they're alone. And we know that based on their immediate reaction, that they immediately hide, not just from God, that came later, they immediately begin to hide from one another because shame now takes over. And so they're experiencing this deep shame, the sense that there is something wrong with me and I cannot let you know. I can't let you find out what I know about myself. 
And so they're experiencing that in their spirit and in their soul, instead of experiencing that wisdom and discernment and that peace and that hope, now, now they're believing lies about themselves. And they're making these poor choices. We see that in Adam, how quickly he was willing to throw Eve under the bus trying to protect himself because of the selfishness and the bitterness and the frustration that he was experiencing. And then even in their physical body, they're experiencing death in the form of hunger and thirst and pain and just generally breaking down. That's how they left the garden. But that's how you and I arrived here on planet Earth. Let me ask you this question. Looking at this list, can anyone relate to feeling like this? Chances are you, you realized how much you're feeling like that before you came to Jesus. But let me ask you this question. Since coming to Jesus, can you relate to this list? Absolutely. The reality is every one of us will feel this at times. What was the key word there? Feel. We will feel this at times. And, and that's something which our enemy knows, our enemy will use and exploit against us that we're going to kind of explore later on th this morning. But I want you to know it's okay. It's okay that you feel that at times. That's, that's part of living in this world. The question is, why are we feeling that and how do we respond to it? And that's what we're going to try to explore. So this is here, this is how Adam and Eve left the garden, I said earlier, and how you and I, we arrived here on planet Earth. We still have a need for life, but now we're in need of life. Now we can't, we can't find life because we're disconnected, separated from God and experiencing death. And so what ends up happening is we look for ways, we look for strategies by which we can live that hopefully will bring life to us. So in verses two and three, Paul lists these three methods that we often have tried and some of us still even try as a means to try and find life. So Paul, referring to before we knew Jesus, says that we all formerly walked according to the course of this world. So what does that mean? This course of this world means basically we're following what the world is teaching us. It's sort of like keeping up with the Joneses or if you're under 25 with the Kardashians it's, it's this idea of trying to, to measure up based on what the world is saying, what social media and Instagram and Facebook is saying out there, what my life ought to look like, and just trying to keep up with all that. Or, or maybe following what the world is offering, the new fad diet or the, the new fad way of organizing your home and your house and all these sorts of things. And so it's just following what the world preaches as an answer. And make no mistake, the world is trying to sell you an answer. They really are. It just doesn't work. The other one he talks about is the prince of the power of the air. That's a really interesting phraseology that I think that Paul's using there. The prince of the power of the air. And I think, I think I, you know, we'll understand that more as we go here. But really, that's just referring to Satan, to our enemy, who is real and does want to destroy us. I mean, the, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. <clears throat> And there was a time when we were in line with Satan. There was a time when we were the children of the enemy, of Satan. And so that's how we kind of live life. And then the third one is the flesh. We all too formally lived according to the flesh. And so together, these three things, they sort of make up an unholy trinity. The world, the enemy, and the flesh. And we're not going to explore all of them this morning. We are going to focus in on one. We're going to just focus in on the flesh. And the reason for that is because I believe the flesh is the biggest battle that you and I face. 
It is a battle that is both universal and daily. Let me say that again. It's a battle that you and I will face, every one of us. It's a universal battle that we face and we will face it every day. This is not a battle that you're going to, you know, with the flesh, you're going to face it and then have this major victory over it. And then that's it. It's done. No more problems. That may be the case with a manifestation of the flesh. For example, maybe you struggle with alcohol or you struggle with drugs or, or a particular sin, lying and so forth. When I was a little kid, before I knew Jesus, I had, the, I had a dirty mouth. I, I spoke like a sailor and, and I just would swear, swear, swear. But when I came to Jesus, that just disappeared and it was gone. And there are some people who struggle with addictions, be it with alcohol and drugs, and they come to Jesus and that particular manifestation of the flesh is gone. And they just don't struggle anymore. The desire disappears. And that's true. That's, that's very much a possible possibility for some people. Not for all, but for some. But that doesn't mean that the problem with the flesh has gone. Because the flesh isn't just limited to that behavior, it's what's driving the behavior. And so maybe you find victory in that one area, but there are many more things that the flesh is trying to get us to do. And so it's just gonna switch tactics. And so this is a battle that you and I face daily, many times throughout the day. And the reason for that is because the flesh, while not you, resides in you, it resides in your earth suit resides in our body and it's constantly waging war with us. And until we get a new earth suit, we're gonna face this battle day in, day out. So it's a, it's a daily struggle, but it's also a universal struggle. And I think this is so important to understand. See, sometimes I meet people in the counseling room and, and we start talking about the flesh and what the flesh looks like. And they almost, they almost feel like it's not okay to have flesh. Oh yes, they, no one would admit they don't have flesh because that would be rather arrogant and proud. So yes, I, I have flesh, but when we try to get to the specifics of it, it's always like I used to, right? I, you know, the flesh, well, it was anger, but then I did this and I did that and I no longer struggle with anger and it's gone. Or it was, you know, alcohol or it was pornography or it was, you know, control, but not anymore. And it's almost like they feel like they've overcome all the flesh. And it's like they're afraid to admit that they struggle because they're almost worried that if you knew that I'm not okay, that if you knew that I don't have it all together, if you knew that I still struggle from time to time, then what would that say about me? So I want you to know because of the universality of the flesh, everyone's got it. Everyone struggles. I know that's amazing. And you think, no way Jim has flesh. Oh boy, man, does he ever? Look at Geraldine. I mean, she's like telling us for sure he's got flesh, right? So every, if Jim can struggle with the flesh, then so can we. Amen? All right, that's really good. Here's the other thing. Sometimes if you're blinded to that reality though, and you still don't see it, then chances are you're losing the battle. Because if you don't recognize that you have flesh and you don't know what the flesh looks like in your life, chances are it's winning because it's blinded you to it, right? And so we want to be able to understand it and know how to face it. So let's begin to, to examine this word flesh. At, at first blush, this word flesh seems to be an odd choice of terms that Paul uses here. But like I said, I think it's because... Because this thing, sometimes it's referred to as indwelling sin, this thing called sin that resides in our body, I think that's why Paul used this term flesh. The Greek word for it is sarx. 
If you were to transliterate that, it's S-A-R-X. And it literally translates to flesh, literally translates to the human body. And so, you know, sometimes that's all it's talking about. Sometimes just referring to the human body. For example, it talks about how Jesus came in the flesh. And all that means is Jesus came with a human body. But then there's other times where Paul talks about this system of living, this way of living, where he's talking about living after the flesh or living according to the flesh or how unbelievers live in the flesh. And that's not talking about your body. It's talking about following after, listening to this thing called the flesh, which is our enemy. So before we define what the flesh is in more detail, I want to start by clarifying what it's not. And, and here's, here's something that's so important. It's not our sinful nature. It's not our sinful nature. That's really important for you and I to understand. That term sinful nature does not show up in the scriptures. Again, the, the Greek word there is sarx, and it literally translates to flesh. What happened was there was the NIV translation. So let's do a little history of the NIV translation. The NIV translation was first published in 1973 as the New Testament only. And then five years later, 1978, they added the Old Testament and you had the NIV Bible. And it, it skyrocketed to become the most popular Bible in terms of sales very quickly. At one point, dominating over 50% of the market. And the reason for why it was so popular was because of the readability. You're, you, at the time, you had, you had a few different major translations. You had the King James Bible, which was still kind of using the these and the thous, you, and the doeths and so forth. And that got confusing for some people. You had the New American Standard Translation, which was, was a bit difficult to read because it was so literal. And then you had the ESV, the English Standard Version. So when the NIV showed up, it was a very readable translation. And that was what the appeal was. That was their goal. Because what they did, the translators, their idea of thinking was rather than translate the word for word, we're going to translate it thought for thought. So they would read a verse and try to you know, determine what was the major idea, what was the major thought in that verse, and then how do we phrase it in a way that will pull that out, which is a, a very noble and very wise approach, except it comes with the danger, comes with a risk. And that risk being is that the interpreters, the translators, are now inviting their own personal interpretation into that understanding. Now, for 95% of the Bible of the new NIV, doesn't really matter. Maybe even more, maybe 97, maybe 98%. It, it just, it works, it's okay. But on this particular area in particular, they made, they, they really dropped the ball. Because what you got now is, Rather than just translating as flesh, they translate as sinful nature. Now you have all these Christians reading and go, well, my Bible says I have a sinful nature. So here's the problem with that. Number one, first, it makes it sound immoral. It makes the, makes the flesh sound like it's only immorality, right? So, so you know, lying, well, that's, that's clearly the flesh because that's immoral. And, and cheating and getting drunk and gambling, drinking Pepsi, leaving the toilet seat up, right? I mean, those are, those are, amen, sisters, right? Those are clearly immoral and, and sinful and wrong, right? And so that's when we start to think about, well, that's what the flesh is. And then you get the moral things and, well, that's not the flesh and that's what we need to achieve to. And so it ends up happening is it becomes so morality-based and that becomes our, our, our focus. But the reality is, you think about the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees were very moral people. They were trying to follow the laws. I mean, they were doing everything they knew in their power to be right and upstanding people. So much so that Jesus called them whitewashed. On the outside, I mean, they looked clean, but they were whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they were clean, but dead on the inside. They just had good looking moral flesh. And that, when I began to understand that, now I began to understood, it, it answered a question I struggled with for a long time. Why are there some non-believers that are nicer than some Christians? Have you ever noticed that? Well, here's why. They've just got nicer looking flesh. Maybe there's some more morality in their flesh than some of the, the immoral flesh that we're seeing in our brothers and sisters, but it's all still flesh. And it isn't a matter of, well, if you have good looking flesh or bad looking flesh, does one please God or more than the other? No, it's all flesh. And flesh doesn't please God one bit. So it's not about a question of whether it's moral or immoral. Here's the other problem with that term sinful nature. It's the word nature. Because now what it implies is that the flesh is part of me. It's part of my nature. And now what ends up happening is I become these two people. I am both this new creation in Christ and I have this sinful, wicked nature. So there's a good me and a bad me that are this battle together. Well, you know what that sets us up for? That sets us up for schizophrenia. Where, where we have a house divided. And Jesus says a house divided cannot stand. So would Jesus set us up to fail by creating these two separate beings inside of you, these two natures that are going against each other? No. That's what the world is trying to teach with, you know, the zing and the, the, the zang. No, that's not it. Yin and yang, that's what it is, right? And, you know, the, the black and white, the good and bad and, and Plato's and all that, you know, that's what they've been teaching and so forth. But that's not you and I. We're not divided on the inside. What God has done is he's taken that old self, that one that was sinful, that was born in Adam, that was flawed and broken, and he didn't add to it a new person. He took the old and he crucified him. And then he buried him. So that old person is gone. And he raised up, you were born again as a brand new person, a brand new creation has created in the likeness of God, in holiness, in righteousness, in truth. That is your nature. That's who you are. Now, the flesh didn't die. The flesh is still around, but that's not you. It's not your nature. Your nature, your new self is good and holy. So if you have an NIV Bible where it says sinful nature in there, then just throw the Bible out. Just burn it or something. I'm kidding. Don't do that. Because again, the Bible's good like 97% of the time. It's a great translation. But wherever you see sinful nature, put a cross through it or write flesh above it. Now, the good news is, you know, since 2011, the NIV Bible released an updated version. And what they did is they dropped the term sinful nature and they replaced it with flesh because they, they, they just heard too many complaints from scholars and theologians saying, that's not a good translation. Here's the problem. So if you go and buy a brand new NIV Bible, you won't see the term sinful nature. Hooray! Here's the problem. For nearly 50 years, that Bible sold. For nearly 50 years, that Bible was one of the top selling Bibles, of, you know, every year, year after year. 
And then you had all these other translations that have come out in the last 50 years. Have you ever noticed how many English translations there are now? I mean, there used to be like a handful and now there's like 800 of them. Well, they all adopted that term sinful nature. And so this, common, this term now is so common within Christianity that Christians now have this belief. You don't have a sinful nature. You do have flesh, but you don't have sinful nature. Make sense? So just a quick word then. People ask me, well, then what's the best translation that I should use? You know, what's the most accurate and so forth? They all have flaws. Even the King James, I know that might shock some people who think it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for us. It's not the case, right? Came 1,500 years after Paul or more. Um, <clears throat> but the best translation is the original Greek. But until you learn Koine Greek, you're going to have to read an English translation, right? And it's okay. They all got their flaws. They all have their pros and cons. But don't be afraid of reading your Bible. Just, just be aware of some things. Does that make sense? All right, let's get back to our understanding of the flesh then. So we're going to give a working definition for the flesh. <clears throat> in, in terms of what it's trying to do in each person. And so the flesh attempts to get a person to find life out of themselves independent of God. The flesh is trying to find life to that love and that worth, that significance, that peace, that patience, that sense of um, love for other people even, all from their own strength, their own resources, independent of God. So let's think about it. Let's go back to our discussion about these core needs, right? That we were talking about. How does, how does that happen? What is it trying to do? Well, I think there is three, three main forms that the flesh is going to try to employ. Number one, it's going to try to earn or gain life through our performance and what we do. So it's going to try and find love, find acceptance based on my performance. Do this, don't do that. You know, be good, avoid the bad things in life. Number two, it's going to try to protect from losing what we have. So I have a little bit of love. I got a little bit of worth. I got a little bit of peace. Don't take that from me. So it's going to try to protect itself. And then finally, it's going to numb or escape. When, it, when the other two fail and I'm left with this hurt, I'm left with this sense of failure, I'm left with this sense of not being good enough, then I'm just going to try to check out, to numb and not feel all those, those difficult emotions that I'm not comfortable with. Does that make sense? All right, let's think about what that might look like then. Let's imagine someone is born with tremendous athletic ability. I mean the, the true superstars of the superstars, right? Like the, the Michael Jordans of this world, the Wayne Gretzkys of the world, the Austin Matthews of the world. Like what, what does the world do with those truly gifted superstar athletes? We idolize them, we worship them, right? You know, we, we buy jerseys with their name on their back, right? We spend way too much money to go to a, to a sporting event and go cheer for them, right? And, and then, you know, little kids get posters and put posters up in their room and so forth. I was, I was watching the Raptors a couple, couple of days ago and, and there's uh, Pascal Siakam. He's at the free throw line. He's throwing up free throws. And what's the crowd chanting? MVP, MVP. Most valuable player, right? They're cheering for him as he just makes a free throw. How do you think he's feeling with all of that cheering, all that adulation? 
all that chanting. I bet you he's feeling pretty good, right? I bet you he feels like, you know, these people love me and I'm, I'm okay, I'm accepted here. And so what these, what these athletes are able to do is to translate or leverage their athletic ability in a way that is valued by other people and find their significance and worth that way. Does that make sense? But then you have other people who are gifted, you know, not physically as an athlete, but gifted as a model, supermodel looks, right? And so these people, they have all the right shapes and all the right curves and all the right proportions and all the right places. And so what do we do with people like that? For example, like what do we do with Barry? with that wonderful Movember mustache, right? Like, what do, what do we do with these people, these supermodels? We idolize them, right? Put them up on billboards and movies and commercials and TV shows. And again, they get all this attention this way. I remember watching an, an interview with a model of, uh, uh, that was connected to a Formula One race in Monaco. That's like the number one race in the whole world. It's, it's even bigger than Daytona or bigger than, than Indianapolis 500. It's the number one race through the streets of Monaco. And they're interviewing this model because she had a, a billboard that was selling perfume with just her headshot because nothing says buy this perfume like a model's face. Amen, right? So they had this giant billboard, just the, the perfume bottle and the model's headshot right at the end of the straightaway. And so these cars are driving 300 kilometers plus and, and the drivers are being distracted. It's like, oh, she's kind of pretty, got to turn. And so they had to take the billboard down because of driver concerns. So they're interviewing the model about this. How does it feel to have all these rich, young, good-looking, formal and drivers just distracted by your beauty? Well, she was positively giddy because that must mean that I'm valuable. That must mean that I'm something special. And so she's using, in this case her, but it could be a guy as well. This person is using their looks as a means to find their significance and value. Which is why we do all the stupid things we do trying to maintain those so-called good looks. Because thinking if I don't look the same way, then I'm gonna lose some value and worth. But then you have other people who aren't gifted physically, they're gifted in their minds. I mean, the Albert Einsteins and the Stephen Hawkins of the world. What do we do with those people? Same thing, right? We idolize them. And we, we look to them and go, wow, you're so smart. I mean, for you, rocket science is like grade three algebra. To you, I just don't understand how you can get that. And so we, we look up to these people and they get their value out of their minds. And then there's other people who are gifted as leaders and they often become either politicians or presidents or, or CEOs or maybe even the prime minister and so forth. And we, we admire their ability to, to lead a group and we follow them. And again, they get their value out of leading. But then there's another group of people, they've been gifted emotionally. They've been gifted in a way that they're able to emotionally connect with someone else. And the best of the best often end up in some kind of a, of a performance art, maybe the actors and actresses, the storytellers, the writers, the performers of our world, because they're able to put on a performance, put on a show that is able to connect with someone else on an emotional level where someone, if they can meet them and say, that performance touched me, that performance moved me. And what do we do with those people? We give them Oscars, 
How many people remember who Sally Field is? There's, there's a, at age 30, I think, anyone below age 30, they look at me when I ask them that question, Sally who? Which, man, I'm getting old, right? So Sally Field, the actress, she won an Oscar. And there's a very famous, you can go look on, on YouTube. When she won her Oscar, she's there holding her Oscar behind the microphone. And she says, you love me. You really love me. You see, what she was doing is she was using her ability to act, to connect with other people emotionally, to prove that she's worthy of love. Here's the problem. What happens the moment the critics don't like her performance? She's not loved anymore. And so that's what the flesh is doing. It's using these natural gifting. Now, none of that is wrong right? It's not wrong to be an athlete, to be, you know, good looking by the world standards. It's not wrong to be smart and make good choices and lead well and and perform and act. None of that is wrong. The problem with it is in which it's being used. It's used as a way to find life. It's used as a way to, to determine whether I'm acceptable or not. Here's the problem. What do the rest of us do? What, what do the ones who are not the supermodels and the super athletes and the super brain and the super leaders, super performers, what do we do? We just do the best I can. So maybe, maybe if I work really hard, you know, put in long hours at work, put in the extra time, and sure enough, I, you know, I won't be the greatest guy there, but I'll have some value because everyone will look at me and say, what a hard worker you are. That was always my mindset. I got to work harder to make up for my lack of ability. So I got to work harder than everyone else. Or, or maybe what ends up happening is I think, well, yeah, maybe I'll never be the super athlete. But you know what? I can be really good in high school sports and, and, and get some value from that for a while and maybe kind of enjoy that for a time. Or, or maybe, maybe I'll never be a supermodel, but you know what? I can, I can get the right clothes and the right accessories and cut my hair the right way and lose some weight and lift some weights and get stronger. And then maybe I'll fit in a little bit. Maybe, maybe I'll be okay. Maybe I'll grab someone's attention and someone will love me. Or maybe if I just, you know, maybe I'll never be an Albert Einstein, but if I can learn a little bit and sound intelligent and learn to be quiet when I'm not, so I don't look like a fool, maybe then I'll be okay. Or maybe if I make some good choices, some good investments, and, or surround myself with enough people, enough friends, and connect with them, then I'll, then I'll feel all right. And so we're striving and we're performing and we're looking for love from this world. But again, life can only be found in Jesus. So instead of finding life from one another, we just keep going and keep going and keep going. I mean, think about these athletes for a time, like, you know, Josh Donaldson, go back a number of years. He was the toast of the town. Every time he got up to bat, he'd get the MVP chance or he'd make a catch. He'd get the MVP chance. Before him, it was Jose Bautista until they couldn't. And then the cheering gets quiet and then maybe turns into some booing. I mean, again, looking at sports, a couple of years ago, Mike Babcock was the hero and now he's the goat. And so how quickly it can change because it doesn't actually work, doesn't actually satisfy. So then when our best efforts don't work so well, 
then, then we start to have some not so good looking flesh, right? We just sort of maybe, you know, try to please people a little bit, wear some masks so I can fit in with this group and not stand out in a negative way with this group over here. Or maybe if I can do something kind, maybe, maybe you'll love me back. Or maybe if I do something, I can fit in. Or, or maybe I can just do something that will have significance and value to you. And when that doesn't work, when I can't perform anymore, now I go back to protecting. And I got to protect what little I've got. So I'm going to control. I'm going to control everything. Because if I can control you, then you can't hurt me. And I don't want to control you to take advantage of you necessarily. I just want to make sure that I don't get hurt. And so maybe I put up these walls and these barriers and I, I push other people away or hide my problems. I don't let you know what I'm struggling with. Because if you knew, if you really knew what I was going through, if you knew what I was dealing with on a regular basis, you, you would be disgusted by me. And you wouldn't want anything to do with me. So I got to hide that. I become very self-defensive. I begin to blame other people, just like Adam did in the garden. All in a means just to protect myself so you don't see what I know to be true. And then again, when that all fails, we go to numbing. We just check out. TV, Netflix is great for that. Food, because it just changes how we feel. We just keep eating and eating and eating. Or, or social media, just this endless scroll through Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, just to escape into our phones. Or maybe it's alcohol and drugs. Maybe it's running away from people and, and not, not hanging out with them. Or, or maybe it's running to relationships that aren't healthy for me. Because it's, again, it's just an escape. I don't have to worry about this over here because I can just enjoy life and have fun and a great time over here and just ignore all this. And I'm just gonna check out and run away from it all. So how does the flesh get us to do this? Because you think about it, how many people actually enjoy controlling everything around us? It's exhausting. It's tiring. How many of us actually enjoy the anger that we use or to protect ourselves? How many of us actually enjoy the fact that we just wasted a whole evening doing mind-numbing stuff? None of us actually enjoy it. Yeah, there may be a place in there, you know, from time to time, but on a consistent basis, none of us enjoy it. So why do we do it? Well, now we're back to how the flesh operates in terms of how it makes us feel. See, what it's trying to do is it's trying to get us to feel not loved, feel not accepted, feel not worthy. The reality is you are 100% loved all the time. You are 100% accepted all the time. You're 100% significant and worthy, safe and secure, and you belong all the time. That never changes. But how many of us always feel that way? We don't. Because the flesh is whispering into our minds, sometimes whispering, sometimes yelling, pointing to our past, pointing to our failures, pointing to other people and the circumstances around us, pointing to what's happening to us, reminding us over and over again that you're not that loved. You're not that special. You don't really fit in and belong here. 
And then that feeling grows and it grows. And then I, then I begin to say, yeah, I, I think that's right. I'm, I'm not okay. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't fit in. I, I can't let them see the real me. Cause if you saw the real me, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. And so I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do something. And then the flesh says, well, here's what I can do. Here's what I can do. I can perform. I can strive. I can work harder or I can protect myself or I could just give up and numb out. And so it's using those feelings to drive the behavior. And the problem with all that is I'm, I'm trying to handle it all on my own. I'm trying to self-manage the flesh. And the reality is you can't. You won't be able to do it. Because when you try to self-manage, when you try to self-protect, the flesh just begins to kind of multiply and grow because you get lost in it. Because it's just now you and the flesh talking over and over again. And that flesh is cunning. It will, it will deceive you and convince you that you are in fact missing something. That you do in fact need to perform. You do need to protect yourself. You need to do something here. And given enough time, I'll do it. And so it starts off with little things. These little lies become bigger lies. These little misbeliefs become bigger misbeliefs. These, these little sins become bigger sins. These little struggles become bigger struggles. And the damage starts little and becomes bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where suddenly a bomb drops on me and everyone around me because I try to self-protect. I try to self-manage the flesh. I can't do that. See, what we need to recognize is we need Jesus, but he's, he's working through one another. See, I can't overcome the flesh on my own, but ne- nor do I need to. It's the spirit that's warring against the flesh in Galatians 5, 17. What we can do is we can turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm struggling right now. I don't feel loved. I don't feel as significant. I don't feel safe. I don't feel peace. I don't feel patience. And I can begin to turn to Jesus. But sometimes I need other people to help me in that. Because sometimes I just feel so stuck in the mud that I need you to come and encourage me and say, you know, you are loved. That you are special. But that can't happen unless I invite you in to share that. That can't happen unless I tell you that I'm struggling, that I don't feel okay. And so... What we need to do is we need to open up and tell people, these are my struggles. This is what the flesh says to me. And this is what I sometimes think I need to do to deal with the flesh. Does that sound scary to anyone? It sounds like a giant risk. Because what if I tell you? What if I tell you that, that I, at times, I struggle with shame and I struggle with insecurity? that I tell you that I'm not actually feeling worthy? What if I tell you I feel alone so much that I feel so unsupported? What if I tell you that I get frustrated and then I get angry? So I want to control my family. I want to control everything around me. And then when that doesn't work, I just want to check out. 
I just want to hide. I want to disappear. And I don't want to deal with any with problems. I just want to avoid everything. I just want to just numb the pain through TV and food, sex sometimes. I just want to run because I don't want to face the problems. What if I tell you all that? What will you think of me? See, the fear is that you're going to think less of me. But here's the thing. In telling you all that, I'm actually telling you who I really am. You see, I'm telling you that I don't actually want to control my family. I don't want to get angry with my family. I don't want to run away and hide from my family. That's not my desires. My true desire actually is to be present and love them. My true desire is to live right and live a life of integrity. That's what I'm telling you when I'm telling you my struggles. Because it's a struggle that I don't want to do. And the people who've shared their struggles with me are more valued, more loved, because they could experience it from me. I hold them in a greater respect. There's that quote that John Lynch and the people of True Face have so beautifully put together. What if there's a place that's so safe that in the, in the telling of yourself, you wouldn't be loved less, but you'd be, be loved more. And so that's what we can begin to form. We can begin to, to risk that vulnerability and share, these are my struggles. This is where I'm at. Allowing someone to meet me there with compassion and tell me the truth. Not dismiss the feelings. The best answer at that point is, I know that's hard. It's hard to feel unloved. It's hard to feel that frustration at times. I get that. How can I, how can I point you back to Jesus? How can I support you right now? And we can now come alongside one another and support one another in this battle against the flesh. And that's what God's given to us in the church. Now next week, we're gonna see more of what God has done, how he's, how he's overcome the flesh, how he's provided that victory. But for today, I just want you to know, don't fight alone. Don't battle alone. You don't have to tell everybody. Don't go on social media and Facebook and say, here are all my problems. You don't have to do that because not everyone's mature enough to handle it. But find some people and start, start with little risks. That's okay. Just, just risk a little bit and see, is this person in fact trustworthy? Is this person actually someone I can risk this with? Can I risk telling myself with Arla? And what will Arla do? Well, she, she didn't reject me okay, I'm going to risk a little bit more. Oh, wow, Arla still loves me. All right, here you go. And I can risk a little bit more and now know that I'm loved by Arla and that's helping point me back to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this battle with the flesh is, is miserable. But again, we said it's universal and it's daily. Every one of us faces it. We face it so many times throughout the day. And so may we give ourselves permission to struggle. May we know that it's okay that we don't have our lives together. That we're still a work in progress. That we're still growing up. We're still maturing. That although we're 100% holy and righteous in you all the time, even on our worst day, we don't always live it out and we don't always feel that way and we don't always believe it.
I pray, Father, that each of us here will take a chance, that we'll risk revealing our struggles to someone else, that they might know who we really are, and we can find that freedom in you. In your name we pray, amen.